Good afternoon. We just finished another great Ask ACES. Today we visited about food insecurity in the U.S. and the critical role of SNAP. Today we have with us Dr. Craig Gunderson, the Soybean Industry Endowed Professor in Agricultural Strategy in the Department of Agricultural and Consumer Economics here in the College of ACES at the University of Illinois. Welcome, Craig. Could you begin by sharing a little with us about what food insecurity is? How is it defined? Jennifer, thank you so much for having me be a part of this podcast. In the United States, we define food insecurity as with respect to 18 questions about regarding food hardships. And each of these questions is when regarding when people face food hardships because they don't have enough money for food. And in other words, if somebody has a, not eating enough food because of fasting or dieting, that would not be considered to be a food, a food hardship. Then out of those 18 questions, for households responding affirmatively to three or more, we define those households as being food insecure. So how many Americans are actually food insecure? So in the most recent um, analysis that has been done on this in the USDA's uh, food security report is in 2015, there, there was 42 million Americans who were food insecure, and of those, um, 13 million are children. Um, this is, fortunately, this has come down in the recent years. As recently as 2013, over 50 million Americans were food insecure. So um, that was, it's good news that it's gone down recently. However, it's still much higher than what it was before the Great Recession in 2007. What segments of the population are especially at risk of food insecurity today? So there's a, a wide array of different um, characteristics of those who are risk of food insecurity. So let me just talk a little bit about some of these, if I may, is that first is, as you might imagine, is low incomes do make a difference in terms of whether or not a household is food insecure. However, is the majority of poor households in the United States are food secure. In other words, despite really limited resources, they're still able to be food secure. And conversely, about 15% of Americans, despite having incomes above the poverty line, are food insecure. So income is not the only determinant of food insecurity, though of course it's a major determinant. Other things that make a difference is, so as an example, is in areas with high food prices, people are more likely to be uh, food insecure. Households with persons with disabilities are at much higher risk of being food insecure than households without persons with disabilities. Certain segments of the population across our country have uh, high rates of food insecurity. So for example, if you look at counties United States that are predominantly composed of uh, American Indian reservations is they have much higher rates of food insecurity in other ways. So a wide array of different um, things. And fortunately, there's been a, a huge literature that's been developed over the past 10 to 15 years to look at uh, the determinants of food insecurity in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the negative health consequences that are associated with food insecurity? So whenever people talk about food insecurity, for a lot of people, there's concern about this. Just we may think it's bad that children are going to bed hungry or it's a, really a tragedy that seniors don't know where their next meal is coming from. So we can talk about it along those lines. However, what makes it of even greater concern, in addition to those just the mere fact that people are going hungry, is that there's a lot of negative health consequences associated with food insecurity. Some of these, as you might expect, are lower nutrient intakes. So in other words, those with lower uh, food insecure have lower nutrient intakes. And this occurs all the way from children up to seniors. But there's also a wide array of other things. So for example, those who are food insecure are more likely to report being in poor or fair health. 
those who are children who are food insecure households are more likely to have behavioral problems in school and um, there's higher rates of depression amongst those who are food insecure so as I could go on and on with these different negative consequences associated with food and food insecurity in the United States so does this result in higher health care costs because of food insecurity absolutely there's been some recent work that has demonstrated how much higher healthcare costs are due to food insecurity. And one study that we did for uh, in the Canadian Medical Association Journal found that for households most at risk at food insecurity, I'm sorry, for households that have the highest level of food insecurity, called severe, severe food insecurity in Canada, is that they have rates of food insecurity, of healthcare costs that are 121% higher than what's called fully food secure households. Now, this analysis was done in Canada for various reasons, but we would expect the same thing to be in the United States. So when we talk about healthcare crisis in the United States, is we have to be talking about the food insecurity epidemic. There's lots of things we can do to re- reduce food insecurity, and we'll be talking about some of those today But one of the advantages is whenever we implement these programs to reduce food insecurity is we're also reducing health care costs. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit about SNAP. First of all, can you tell us what is SNAP and who is eligible for SNAP? SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It used to be called the Food Stamp Program up until recently. In Illinois, it's known as the, the LINK Program. So... What SNAP is, is it gives people uh, money on an electronic benefits transfer card, an EBT card, which they can use at approved retail food outlets for food for their families. Um, It's been in existence for 50 years now, and it's been now has become the key component of the social safety net against hunger in the United States. And as we'll talk about later, is it's been an enormously successful program. Um, People are eligible for the program roughly if their incomes are below roughly 130% of the poverty line. What that means then is for a family of four is they would be eligible for SNAP if their incomes were below $30,000. The amount of SNAP benefits somebody gets depends upon their household size and on their household income. So as household income increases, so too do people's benefit levels fall. The maximum benefit level is for a family of four per month is $700. So this is a generous program for individuals. And again, it's a, the annual budget for the SNAP is about $72 billion, and it's far and away the largest source of expenditures for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So what does research tell us about the impact of SNAP? So there's been a vibrant literature looking at the multiple benefits associated with SNAP. First and foremost, as I mentioned in the previous question, is SNAP is a program that's designed to alleviate food insecurity. And study after study has shown that SNAP recipients are less likely to be food insecure. So, for example, as one study found that in comparison to eligible non-participants, SNAP participants are over 20% less likely to be food insecure. That's a large number. That really demonstrates the profound impact of SNAP. In fact, as I oftentimes say, is, is I can't think of a more successful government program than SNAP. SNAP sets out to alleviate food insecurity, and it does a fantastic job at that. But it also, SNAP has many other dimensions. So, for example, SNAP has been associated with improvements in general health. It's been associated with higher nutrient intakes across many different dimensions. It's been associated with reductions in poverty. 
Um, it's been associated with things as myriad as even in reductions in infant mortality. There's a wide array of benefits associated with SNAP, which really has made it a premier social safety net program in the United States. What are some current policy proposals that would change the structure of SNAP? So later we can talk a little bit about some of the things that I think would change the structure of SNAP in a negative way. But let me first just briefly touch on something that would really improve the structure of SNAP. Would be so while SNAP is an amazingly successful program at reducing food insecurity, for some SNAP recipients is the benefit levels are not enough. And therefore, because they're not enough, is that these households are still food insecure. So if I was to change the structure of SNAP at all is what I would do would be to have some specific ways of increasing um, SNAP benefits. If we want to talk more about that, we can. But one advantage to this then is people always approach us and say, what can be done to address food insecurity in the United States? And from my perspective is we already have this amazingly successful program, SNAP, that does so much good at reducing food insecurity and using SNAP as a further mechanism to reduce food insecurity by increasing SNAP benefit levels. So what are some of the threats that are being posed to SNAP and what can we do to change the structure to help that? So there's, unfortunately, SNAP, despite it being an enormously successful government program, is there's some people who uh, want to change it in ways that would seriously harm the program. And this is over two dimensions. The first is with respect to block granting SNAP, and the second is imposing restrictions on SNAP. In terms of restrictions on SNAP, this takes two forms. It takes the form of imposing restrictions on people can only get SNAP benefits if they're working a certain number of hours outside of the, um, outside of the home, and also some restrictions on persons using um, drugs. The other thing, though, that, and, I, and I'll talk about this later, is that some people have proposed imposing restrictions on what people can purchase with SNAP. Okay, so let's break that down. If this was implemented, what would be the consequences of block granting SNAP? One of the strengths of SNAP is that during bad economic times, it expands to meet the increased need because more people are food insecure, more people are poor, and really in need of assistance. And so that's what we saw during the Great Recession was SNAP. Uh, the number of people receiving SNAP increased dramatically, as too did the total expenditures on the program. Now, on the one hand, it's bad that expenditures increased because we would like people not to have to utilize SNAP. But it's also wonderful that we have this program that when people are in need is they're able to use this program. So that's a positive thing about SNAP is that it expands and contracts with respect to need. We see again and again, though, is whenever programs are block-granted, is that in this case, states would be given a set amount of money to help, um, instead of making this entitlement, continuing on as an entitlement program, we're going to expand and contract with the economy, states would be given a fixed amount of money. And what we see again and again whenever block grants are used is that Congress doesn't approve more money when the economy gets worse. So SNAP's role as a social safety net program would be diminished greatly by block granting. So what would the consequences be of restricting SNAP purchases? So currently, one of the key advantages to SNAP is it gives dignity to recipients insofar as recipients get this money on their electronic benefit transfer card and they're able to go to a food store and purchase what they think is best for their families. Throughout the history of SNAP, is there's always been people who want to restrict what people can purchase. And this takes different forms at different times. As you know, Some people have proposed not allowing people to purchase meat. Some people have proposed other things along those lines. Most recently is people have proposed restrictions on purchases of sugar-sweetened beverages. So, for example, they don't want people purchasing Gatorade or purchasing uh, Lipton iced tea or other things like that. 
The problem comes in is that whenever we restrict purchases, is it's really demeaning and patronizing to poor households. So every year I get a mortgage tax deduction, and the government doesn't try to tell me how I can spend that money. But we sometimes feel some people feel it's fine to tell poor people how they can spend their money on what they can spend their money on. So a, it's demeaning and stigmatizing to poor people. B is if you talk to the National Grocery Association and other organizations, is it's well recognized that imposing these restrictions would increase food prices, which hurts everybody, but especially it hurts poor people. And finally, and most importantly, is because people are going to leave SNAP, because people don't like to be stigmatized and demeaned by the restrictions on what they can purchase, and um, that will lead to food insecurity in the United States, along with the higher food prices, will lead to increases in food insecurity in the United States. I mean, because, you know, can you imagine is if you're a senior citizen who's getting SNAP benefits and then all of a sudden being told by the government what you can and cannot purchase with that. I think a lot of people would say, I'm not going to participate in the program. So in light of this, what would you propose to make SNAP an even stronger program? So as I mentioned before, is one of the things that I would propose to do is to make benefits larger for people. One other thing that, that I think would make SNAP an even stronger program is we have a large portion of our population who is food insecure, but they're above the SNAP eligibility threshold. So their incomes are above, you know, like I said before, above $30,000 for a family of four. They're not eligible for SNAP. However, they're still in great need of, of assistance. And you know, particularly, you see this a lot in you know, higher-priced cities like New York and San Francisco. It's hard to live on $30,000 a year for a family of four, but they oftentimes are ineligible for SNAP. So programs that would expand eligibility high up in, higher up into the income um, spectrum would be a, a good idea. Another area where we could probably expand SNAP currently is that um, a time of the year that's a really, a day, is, you know, summer is a wonderful time for a lot of children. Summer is a hard time for a lot of poor children because they no longer get national school lunch program and school breakfast program uh, meals through there. And because they don't get meals through there is that one consequence of this then is that A, they're not getting their meals, but B, the family now has to spend more money to provide um, uh, food for their children. And therefore, one thing that could be proposed then is that we could have like a summer EBT program whereby children over the summertime, their families get um, SNAP benefits akin to what they get um, through the school year. Are there any other food assistant programs that are used to alleviate food insecurity? Again, while the central goal of SNAP is um, to alleviate food insecurity. And any discussion about food insecurity and how we alleviate it has to begin and end with SNAP. It's that important. However, there's lots of other neat programs that we have in the United States that help to alleviate um, food insecurity. So one of them is the TFAP program, the Emergency Food Assistance Program, which gives um, food through our network of food banks in the United States under the umbrella of Feeding America. So food pantries and other resources are available to individuals. Another thing that's a, two great programs at the National School Lunch Program and School Breakfast Program, research has demonstrated again and again that children who receive free or reduced-priced lunches are at much less lower risk of being food insecure than those um, children who are eligible for the program but not receiving benefits. So therefore, programs to make sure that children continue to receive benefits through these programs is especially important. And as part of that is while National School Lunch Program is in virtually all schools in the United States, there's still some schools without a school breakfast program. Making sure all schools have the school breakfast program and, if possible, is to have uh, school breakfast 
in the classroom would be another nice thing to do with that to make sure all students get food. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Feeding America network of food banks and how do they play a role in alleviating food insecurity? Feeding America is an amazing organization and they serve as the umbrella organization for all network of food banks in the United States. And so one great thing about these food banks and the food pantries that they run so here in, uh, here in the Champaign-Urbana area, it's the Eastern Illinois Food Bank who's do- doing wonderful work, is that there's lots of individuals who are getting SNAP, or maybe their children are getting National School Lunch Program or School Breakfast Program, but they still need some more food. For a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of families on SNAP who still are food insecure despite getting the benefits to that program. Through by having, going, being able to go to a food pantry means that those families are able to get just enough more food such that they're able to feed their families for the month. I can't overemphasize the importance of this pro, these uh, food pantries for their families. Another instance are those, as I mentioned earlier, is a lot of non-poor households are food insecure. A lot of these households have such high of income that they're not eligible for any program. Their kids aren't even eligible for national school lunch program or school breakfast program. For these households, the only place they can turn to is the services provided by their local food bank. So in that sense, it's a really important program for those households at risk of food insecurity as well. So does food insecurity exist in every county in the United States? Yes. So one thing that's a, a common misconception is that you'll oftentimes hear sometimes you say, oh, food insecurity does not exist in my backyard. But we've done work with Feed in America, and they have something called uh, Map the Meal Gap. So if you're interested, you can even go to the, if you Google Map the Meal Gap and you go to the website, you can ascertain the food insecurity rate for all counties in the United States, including your, your own county. So while there is a lot of variation, some counties have lower rates than other counties, is that every single county in the United States, including, of course, every county in Illinois, has some food insecurity that exists within, in, their, in their counties. You know, we've heard you talk about high food prices resulting in food insecurity. Is there a solution to this? There's multiple things we could do in terms of um, these high prices. The first thing is, is I think that, well, of course, some regulations are always useful, is that I think we have to begin to reevaluate. Are all the re- regulations that we have really useful in terms of uh, achieving their desired goals? And especially in terms of food, is sometimes we have some regulations that may impede on on this. And so eliminating these some of these bur- more burdensome regulations would be a positive development, which help keep food prices low. The second thing is to not tax foods. I mean, whenever we tax foods, is while it doesn't hurt middle class and upper middle class households, is for, for poor families, it's a pu- poses a huge burden on them when their food due to the increase in food prices. They have limited budgets that they can spend on food, and whenever you increase food prices through taxes is it hurts poor households the most. So I, re- I would resist taxing food, whether it be considered a quote-unquote healthy foods or whether it be quote-unquote unhealthy foods. Just don't tax food because it's one of the more regress- regressive forms of taxation we have in our society. And then as I mentioned at the outset of this, uh, at the outset of this podcast is any discussion about food insecurity has to begin and end with SNAP. So we have to recognize the critical importance of SNAP and in making sure that these families are able to um, afford enough food, even in areas with high with high food prices. We should also recognize that SNAP is also beneficial to the food retail environment by incur- by allowing people to spend more on food than they otherwise would. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Gunderson. We really appreciate all the work that you do and all the ways that you're helping SNAP and fighting food insecurity in our country and our world. And again, thank you for your time today. And if you didn't get a chance to join us on our Ask ACES chat, please go check it out on Twitter and follow us for the next one. Have a great day.